All right, good morning, everybody. Wasn't that awesome there, singing that? So cool, so fun. Talking about the story we have because of Jesus Christ and uh, the new story we get to have in Him and what He's going to do in, in our lives. And I love the song before that uh, uh, called Oceans. And uh, really, the, the bridge is my favorite part. And the bridge, it talks about that I would be able to lead, Spirit lead me to a place where I can trust without borders. Don't you love that phrase? Because so many times we have borders on our trust of God, right? And we have him kind of hemmed in to what we think he can do. Uh, but then the next line is that he would lead me to walk on waters. And so just think about that whole idea of, you know, when Peter did walk on water, he, de- he definitely had trust without borders, didn't he, when he got on that boat and did that. That's just so cool when you think about that. I got to meet a new friend recently. Uh, her name is Jenny Williams. And she's the uh, head of Courage House, and our church is partnering with Courage House and just trying to figure out what all that is right now. But I got to go over to Courage House with Kim not long ago and John Fairchild. And while we were there, uh, she, you know, threw out a couple of phrases that I know must be just kind of the way she operates. But uh, one phrase she has for all of her girls that are being rescued from sex trade at Courage House is that they are born on purpose for a purpose, born on purpose for a purpose. And then, you know, the way she looks at what they're getting to do is that they're water walkers. And I just love that idea, water walkers, you know, that that's what we want to be. We want to be people without boundaries, and we would be willing to step forward with God wherever it is that he calls us or guides us. And so um, just, yeah, that's just a commercial before we get to the talk, okay? So <laughs> now where do I go from here, right? Uh, so here we are. We're in this series. The idea of the series was germinated at the end of, when, when I was preparing for our talks, it would be at the end of the Renew series, and I knew we were going to focus for two or three weeks on the gospel. Now, we didn't say, hey, this is the gospel we're talking about. We talked about grace and what God has done for us. And then at the end, it talked about, you know, the most important thing that we can talk about is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, you know, as I was looking at that, I said, okay, let's do that then. Let's just talk for several weeks about the death of Jesus. You know, not just a message, not just a part of a message, but for several weeks, let's look at the death of Jesus Christ and let's let it come into us. Let's let it come in and become part of who we are in our understanding so that we can have a better picture of the power of the cross. And so we're looking at the seven last sayings of Jesus Christ from the cross when he spoke them. The first one we looked at was the word of forgiveness. And we talked about the fact that Jesus at the cross met our greatest need, and our greatest need was for forgiveness. And he looked out from the cross and he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And then the next week, we looked at the word of assurance. And we realized that all of us, you know, we we need this certainty inside. The certainty is that there's more to life than here. There is a tomorrow. There's a promised place that we get to go. And Jesus said to the criminal on the cross, the second one, he said to that criminal, he said, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in the place that I'm going to take you. So we had the word of assurance. And last week we had the word of compassion. And this was, this blew me away about Jesus Christ. And once again, he's gone through a lot of pain and suffering and beatings and torture. And he's been hanging on the, you know, he's hanging on the cross. And he has the awareness at that moment to look down from the cross and see his mother, whom he loves, and his disciple, John, 
whom he loves. And he had the awareness at that moment to take care of them. And he looks down and he says, woman, here's your son. And then to John, here's your mother. And the compassion that shows helped me to see that Jesus not only was being compassionate on them, but he was establishing a new family, new family that we could all be part of at that moment where we could all have a place where we could know and be known, love and be loved, serve and be served, celebrate and be celebrated. We could all have an experience with a family. That's the word of compassion that he gave us last week. And today what we want to do is we want to look at the word of purpose, the words that Jesus spoke, which shows his true purpose for coming to live. So if you want to grab your notes out of your program, it'd be awesome if you do that. They look like this. You can follow along. All the verses I'll use will be here. You can write down some thoughts today. If you have your Bible, you can open it to Matthew 27. We're going to be looking there, beginning at verse 45, at Jesus' words that he spoke from the cross here. And I'm just going to begin by reading those. It says this, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So now let's give this word some context, okay? Let's just give a little bit of context here. As we talked about, Jesus had been arrested, beaten, flogged, ridiculed, mocked, abandoned, betrayed, all the things you could talk about that had happened to Jesus Christ. Then he was put on a cross. He was hung on that cross at about 9 a.m. About 9 a.m. he was put on the cross, and he's been hanging on the cross for three hours now. Now, the first three words that I just listed for you, those are the three words he spoke in the first three hours. We don't know, you know, when he spoke them in the three hours. I know he didn't rat a tat a tat them off right from the beginning, that they were part of, you know, what was happening under the foot of the cross for the people who were there, those kinds of things. And three hours have gone by, and now a darkness comes over the earth. A darkness fell. Now, many people, and I did a lot of research because, you know, every time I speak, I want to make sure I'm being as close as I can to what the most common view of what the Bible says would be. And so I did a lot of looking this week about this whole idea of darkness. And many people try to explain this darkness and what was it. Uh, Some people think that it was a cloud that, you know, that all of a sudden the cloud came over the sun at noontime. And, you know, that could, you know, think about that. That's logical that when you have clouds come over and it makes it darker, but then when you have those really heavy rain clouds and how it can actually feel almost like night a little bit, it gets that dark in that way. So, you know, some people think it, think it could have been a cloud. Some people think it could have been one of those eastern, Middle Eastern dust storms. You know, you've seen pictures of those where they roll, you see them rolling into the city and they just are so dark and they make everything dark underneath them. Other people think, well, maybe it was an eclipse, that there was an eclipse of the sun that happened. And so it was just an eclipse. Well, I'll just say this. If you think about the fact that it was clouds, well, the words that are chosen here would mean more than clouds. They mean the absolute like night. So it was, you couldn't see in front of your face. It was pitch black, kind of like my neighborhood without street lights. You go out at night and you don't know where you are because it's so black when you actually get there. And was it a dust storm? Well, this happened during the Passover. If you know, the Passover happens in springtime and the, this would be during the rainy season. So it's not likely it was one of those typical dust storms they might have. Was it an eclipse? Well, once again, during the Passover, the full moon is involved 
And so we don't have full moons during an eclipse. But it was sort of like an eclipse, okay? That's probably as nearly as we can get to like an eclipse. Now, an eclipse, what happens is you have the sun, and then you have the moon, and then you have the earth. And so the moon comes between the sun, uh, us and the sun, and so the, the sun's brilliant, and then all of a sudden you see a shadow start creeping across it, and it gets more and more until the sun's covered. And at that moment, you could call that dark, and then the sun goes back across. And that just happens in a few moments, just a few moments. But what happened here lasted for three hours, three hours. And so what I want to do is I just want to say, hey, let's just go with what the Bible says. It was dark, and it was dark for three hours, and you probably couldn't see in front of your face what was happening right there. So let's just kind of leave it at that about what the darkness was about. But here's what the darkness means. The darkness means God's judgment. God's judgment. And when it says it was over the, all the land, what that means, it's a sign of the fact that God's judgment was over the whole human race. The whole human race. Therefore, what this represents, the darkness represents, is that God turned his back on this scene, on this setting. The darkness shows us that, hey, God is here, and God is judging sin. That's what we learned from this. God is here, and God is judging sin. Now, we know from reading the Bible uh, that God is holy. In fact, you know, we all say God is holy, but we also say God is love. Do you know in the Bible it says God is holy? It says holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It never says love, love, love is the Lord. Love, love, love is the Lord. So the primary characteristic of God is his righteousness is his holiness. And we know that because he's righteous and holy, he cannot be in the presence of anything that is unrighteous or we would call sinful. Here's some verses that talk about that. Habakkuk 1.13 is the first one. Talking about God, it says, you're pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. So because you're pure, you can't be in the presence. You can't stand the sight of anything as evil because of your righteousness. Isaiah 59, talking about you and me now. Your sins have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. He's turned away because of your sins and will not listen anymore. So here's what's going on. In the middle of this darkness, Jesus was feeling the weight and the emptiness and the pain and the evil of the sins of the world that were being put on him. It caused him to feel, for the very first time in his eternal existence, separation from his father. It caused him to feel the wrath of God towards sin and the people who did it. God's wrath towards sin and the people who did it. That word abandoned, it means forsaken, it means forgotten. That's what Jesus was feeling. And then it says that he cried out with a loud scream. Now, the word that's chosen there would indicate that it was not just a scream, but it was a loud shriek at the top of his lungs, the top of his voice. as much strength as he could muster. Remember all that he's been through. He's been hanging down the cross for six hours. At the end of that six hours, what happens is at the end of the three hours of darkness is that the darkness begins to dissipate, light begins to return, and at that moment, that's when Jesus screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I love how this pastor, writing in the 1600s, describes this. 
He was without any comforts of God. No feeling that God loved him. No feeling that God pitied him. No feeling that God supported him. He was without God. God had been his son before. Now the son had become darkness. He was as if he had no God. All that God had been to him before was taken from him now. He was godless, deprived of his God. He had the feeling of the condemned when the judge says, Depart from me, you cursed, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Ah, that is the hell Christ suffered. The ocean of Christ's suffering is unfathomable. The ocean of his suffering is unfathomable. So as much as I can describe today that he was taking on the sin of the world, he was, ta- he was re- you know, undergoing the separation from his father, it's still a mystery to us, folks. It's still a mystery as to everything that Jesus was experiencing there. And you know, anytime that you have someone who wants to tell you that they know what Jesus was experiencing precisely, I've got a theological word for that. And the theological word is baloney. Okay? It's just baloney. Because no one actually knows. But we can look in and we can project. Now, you got to know this. What Jesus was going through was no surprise to him. It didn't surprise him at all. Just the night before, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he could look forward into the day that was coming. He could look forward into the events that were about to transpire. He knew that there would be this moment when the sins of the world were put on his shoulder. And he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed and asked God that this cup would be taken from him. And he prayed with such intensity because he knew what was coming that he actually sweat drops of blood. He knew what was coming. So most scholars just would agree that the feelings of bearing the punishment and judgment and the wrath of God toward the sins of the world is what he's expressing when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing what it was like to be separated from God's love. I think it's John 1, maybe uh, 17 or 18. In an old translation of the Bible, it says that Jesus had been in the Father's uh, uh, bosom, bosom since creation. So the idea is that in the Holy Trinity reality, that you have God the Father, you have God the Son, and you have Holy Spirit together existing since before time began in a unity that, once again, is a mystery to us that we can't even fully understand or comprehend, existing in absolute love together, that at a certain point, Jesus volunteered to be the one who would step forward and say, I'll be the one who goes and gives my life, who suffers under these circumstances, and that now he's separated. And once again, we don't fully know what that means, but we, it's pretty big, I would say, that he's experiencing this at this moment, that separation. I was thinking about this. How do I help us to understand that. How do I help us? I, I, I think that as human beings, we go through suffering, we go through separation, we go through loss, and so at some level, we can know what Jesus was experiencing. Some of you have been betrayed by really close friends, and so in that betrayal, you knew what it was like to be separated, you knew what it was like to, uh, to be abandoned, uh, that Some of you have been through loss. Some of you have been through death. 
I know our high school this week has grieved the loss of a man that has been held up as uh, an awesome, the, the core of in you. He will be missed by many. And losses like this, when they happen, they're just felt so deeply in our souls. And many of us have been through that kind of loss. Psychologists would say that the greatest loss that we can experience is the death of a spouse. Say the death of a spouse. And so you look at that and you think, and the longer you're married, the more that sense of loneliness actually is, that sense of loss is, as your spouse has died. Tomorrow we're going to have a funeral here uh, for Harry York, and, and his wife's going to be here, and she's going to feel deeply the years and years and decades that they've been married together. So we can understand loss. But from a pastor's perspective, psychologists say the greatest loss is the loss of a spouse. From my perspective, the greatest loss that someone can go through is the loss of a child. Young child, young adult, the loss of dreams, the loss of hopes, those kinds of things. So at a certain level, I think that we can comprehend what it's like to lose and comprehend what it's like to feel the loneliness that Jesus is actually feeling. So I just wanted to get us there to that place so we could know that Jesus can relate to us as we can relate to him. Okay, so three ideas we want to look at from this story. The first is this. From the cross, Jesus expresses his passion. From the cross, Jesus expresses his passion. Now, when most of us talk about passion, we're talking about what? We're talking about love, you know, that it's all about love, right? We're talking about that passionate expression between two people when they fall in love with each other. Or we're talking about something that we're passionate about, that we would want to go for that because we feel such strong, intense passion about it. But when the word passion is associated with the death of Jesus Christ, it refers to his suffering. It refers to his pain, the suffering he was going to go through. It's talking about intense emotion. So here's the idea. It's talking about intense suffering because of intense love. That's what Jesus is experiencing. Intense suffering because of intense love that he's exhibiting on the cross. The passion of Christ is the suffering of Christ. The passion of Jesus shows the links that God would go to to not just show us his love, but to bring us into his love so that we could be in relationship with him. Now, notice this scene. Uh, so we look at this. The scene we're, we're witnessing and talking about was predicted by Isaiah over 700 years earlier. He says this in Isaiah 53. He is talking about Jesus here, was despised and rejected. It's prophesying forward about Jesus. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And that's what's happening. The Lord is laying on his son, Jesus Christ, the sins of of us all, because the only way that we could be cleansed of the guilt for our sin was for a perfect sacrifice to be given, a perfect sacrifice. And because Jesus was sinless, he became the perfect sacrifice so that we could be cleansed of our guilt. 
Wayne Grudem says this, When Jesus bore the guilt of our sins upon the cross, God the Father, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. Jesus became the object of intense hatred of sin and punishment for sin, which God has patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. That's what Jesus was going through at this moment. Jesus himself expressed it so well. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And so Jesus is saying, I love you this much that I'm going to go to the cross so that you could be cleansed and you could be in relationship with the Father, be in relationship with him. That's his passion. Next, we see that this word expresses his purpose. It expresses his purpose. In January, I was able to go to a spiritual formation workshop. And in the spiritual workshop I was in, uh, the man that was leading it, the spiritual director, he talked about the verses I want to read next and helped me to see them in a way that expresses Jesus' passion and purpose. Let me read them first, Mark 10. So this is what it says. They were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Would you underline those phrases? Jesus was walking ahead of them. And then they paused along the way, and Jesus says, Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him, but after three days, he will rise again. So kind of the idea is this, is that if you remember that Jesus, when he did his first miracle, when he turned water into wine, when his mother first came to him and wanted him to act, at that moment he says, woman, now is not the time. He says, now is not the time. So Jesus knew from the time he started his ministry, exactly where he was going, and he knew he was going to Jerusalem to the cross. So as Jesus is doing ministry, I don't know how God did this, but I think Holy Spirit came to Jesus and said to Jesus, now is the time. Now is the time. And so what Jesus did at that moment, he didn't stop and say, can I pray about that? He didn't stop and say, oh, I'm not really sure about this. I really want to be clear. So how about three days of fasting first? He didn't say, you know what? I've got 12 people that I've called around me for wise counsel. How about if I bring those 12 around me and I ask them? What Mark is saying here is that when Jesus received the word, that Jesus resolutely stepped forward and he headed with his face high to Jerusalem, knowing that when he got to Jerusalem, what was he facing? He was facing the cross. He was facing his death. He was facing the reason that he had come, to die for the sins of the world. And it shows his purpose, that that is why he actually came. From the minute he began his ministry at age 30, he had one purpose, and that was to die for the sins of the world. 
Now, we can talk about all kinds of reasons Jesus came. Remember back three weeks ago when I talked about forgiveness, I gave you some thoughts about this. We can say, hey, Jesus came to alleviate suffering. Jesus came to deliver the oppressed. Jesus came to liberate those who were in slavery or captivity. Jesus came to feed the poor and the hungry. Jesus came to show us who God is. Jesus came to teach. All of those are amazing results of why Jesus came. But the most important thing he did was he faced himself toward Jerusalem and headed to the cross where he could give his life for you and me and suffer and die. And Jesus was committed to that purpose all the way to the end. Think about it. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, that temptation centered around whether Jesus was going to fulfill his purpose or not or if there was another way. And Jesus withstood every temptation and stayed true to his purpose. Even on the night when he was betrayed, on the night he went through trials, Jesus had opportunities. If he would have just answered the questions politically correctly, then he would not have gone to the cross. But Jesus knew that, and he went ahead and answered the questions in the only way that would lead him to the cross because the cross was his purpose and he wasn't getting away from that purpose and his purpose was to die for the sins of the world, to die for that. And because of that, he experienced separation from his father. He experienced the punishment that was due every man, woman, and child throughout history for the sins that they had committed. His purpose was to set us free from the wrath of God. Now, I'm totally aware that right now in culture, it's really not vogue, politically correct, to talk about the wrath of God. It's really cool to talk about the love of God and to talk about the compassion of God, to talk about His grace, to talk about the experience we can have in life. But folks, if we don't understand the wrath of God, we can never fully embrace the meaning of the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus Christ took the wrath of God, the hatred of God. You're like, really? The hatred of God toward sin. And that's what Jesus Christ endured for three solid hours. And at the end of those three hours, he cried out, we're going to look in a moment, a strong word of his faith and trust in God. But he came to set us free from that wrath. Look at what it says in Galatians 3. It says, Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. Now, what I want to do is I want to do a pause here. We're going to have a little theological lesson, okay? Uh, theology lesson for just a moment. And I want to help us to understand a word that, uh, and a concept uh, that we can maybe grasp today. And I believe that this is a freedom concept, okay? So we need to understand it. On the cross, Jesus became our substitute. I'm going to talk about this for just a moment. He became our substitute. The cross is about substitution. Jesus became our substitute. Now, to help us understand substitute, you know, let's go to culture today. Uh, you guys have all read or seen the Hunger Games, right? Many of you have read or seen the Hunger Games. And at the beginning of the Hunger Games, you have Katniss Everdeen and her sister Primrose. 
and they were having a drawing to see who would participate in the Hunger Games, uh, knowing that that would mean more than likely certain death. And so the piece of paper was pulled out. Primrose was read. Primrose is the younger sister to Katniss. And at that moment, Katniss raised her hand and said, I volunteer. I volunteer to be her substitute. And so Katniss then went on and played in the Hunger Games because she knew that had her sister Primrose gone, that Primrose would surely have died. And so Katniss was willing to give her life so that her sister could have life. Now, that's as clearly as I can get an example from culture, but even that leaves us flat and way below what Jesus' substitution means for us. Because Katniss, well, she loved her sister, right? And so Katniss was going to do everything she could to make sure that her sister, you know, lived and they had this relationship. And so it was out of that that she chose to be her substitute. But here's the deal. When Jesus became our substitute, the Bible says that he died for people who were his enemies. His enemies. So when Jesus became our substitute, he became the substitute for people who were his enemies, who had rejected him. But he did that because of love. Now, the Bible's really clear on this whole idea of substitution. And so if you read your Bible from now on, the New Testament specifically, the writings of Paul and in other writings, you're going to see it throughout. But I want to give you two examples. Here's the, here's the uh, substitution. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin first, so that we could be made, with, made, made right with God through Christ. Second, okay, now the next verses, First Peter. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin first and live for what is right second. So I'm going to talk to you about the two aspects of substitution that happened when D Jesus Christ died on the cross. There are two things happening here. One, Jesus takes my place. That's the first aspect. Jesus takes my place. God puts my sin on him, and he dies the death I should die. So he dies the spiritual death that I should die. Two, I take Jesus' place. So here's the other aspect of substitution. I take Jesus' place. So what happens is, is God now puts Jesus Christ's righteousness on us, because he lived the life that we should have lived. Because he lived the sinless life, and he puts his righteousness on us. On one hand, he died the death I should have died. On the other hand, he lived the life I should have lived. And so what happens is, is he becomes sin and receives the punishment I deserve. He received the treatment I deserved. I then become righteous and receive the benefits I don't deserve. Isn't this so cool? You guys should be about screaming right now, okay? He says, I'm being treated in the way that he deserves, and he delights in me. He just absolutely delights in me. Because of what Jesus Christ did, for dying, did by dying on the cross for me, I can be forgiven but also because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross, I can be cleansed. Okay, this is just so cool. And some of us are stuck in this area. 
We say yes to Jesus Christ. We say, oh, Jesus, I'm so glad that you gave your life for me. I was such a worm as I, and that you gave your life for me, and thank you so much for forgiveness. And then what happens is, is we're forgiven, and then we go forward. But we've got all this residue on us from our sin. We've got all this burden, the burdens of sin. We've got all of it on us, and we think, oh, I've got to get rid of this. So we've got to take it off. I've got to fight. I've got to do. I've got to serve. I've got to build. I've got to go. All these things that we think we have to do, but we can't get rid of it because we still carry this residue. And what I want to say to you today, this may set some of you free, hopefully, for the rest of your days, is that you do not have to carry the residue of sin for another day. You don't have to carry the residue of sin, the burden of sin, for another day. Some of you are just caught in this cycle where you say, come up, you say, okay, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And then you feel cleansed and you sin again and you have burden again. And then you wallow underneath that burden. You grovel, you crawl, and you believe you've got to do something for him. And Jesus says, you do not have to go into that burden zone again. Because when you say, I'm forgiven, you're also saying, I'm cleansed. I'm cleansed and you can be set free. Set free. It's all about grace. It's all about his grace. That's substitution. Isn't that a cool word? What he did for us? Okay, last. I'm sorry I got all carried away there. Last, the cross, the word of the cross expresses his trust, expresses his trust. Now, most scholars just believe that when Jesus was crying out these words, he he was identifying with Psalm 22, And Psalm 22 is a lament psalm, but it's also a prophetic psalm prophesying forward. When David wrote this, if you read Psalm 22 in your community group this week, I'm hoping you do a message based on work, and you do that this week, you're going to discover that when he's talking here, there's many things in Psalm 22 that actually didn't happen to David. And he's prophesying forward, but it begins with the phrase that Jesus chose. Now, here's the deal. When Jesus used these words that we're going to read in just a minute, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, his Jewish audience, they would have immediately known what was happening because this was a psalm. This was a song they sang. This was an old hymn to them for those of you who grew up in that generation, okay? So if I were to stand up and say, you know, we start singing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, what you would know the next line, right? That saved a wretch like me. You'd know it immediately. Well, when Jesus said these words, his crowd knew the rest of the whole song. And they knew what Jesus was talking about when he expressed these words. Okay, here, let's read a couple of them. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groaned for help? Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. And then I I should have put verse 8 on there too. This is talking prophecy-wise, but it says verse 8. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now, these verses are pointing forward to the experience that Jesus is going uh, is under on the cross right now. David, riding under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, describes a day when a man would suffer and a man would be delivered up, but that man would be able to stand up under all the pressure because of his trust in God. And Jesus, when he says those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I'm the guy. I'm the guy David was writing about. I'm the one. And because of my trust in God, I have withstood separation from him. He's declaring his trust in God. So how can we respond? Let's just kind of wrap it up. Let's kind of land the plane here, okay? Let's wrap it up. How can we respond to these words? Two ways. One is this. 
I can place my faith in him. I can place my faith in him. Romans 3, 22. It says we are made right with God by placing our faith. Would you just underline that? By placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, what we've done, where we've been, or what anybody else says about us. Every one of us. Now, because I get this a lot, and um, I know you do too, and some of you even think like this, and we get all confused about this, and we talk about death, and we talk about life, and we look at people. Um, Many of us, we want God to accept everyone because they were good enough, right? That's a good person. Surely God will accept them because they're good enough. But what we learn here and what we've learned today from this word is that there was someone who was good enough. And that one who was sinless and perfect and good enough died because no one else could ever be good enough. And he gave his life so that we could have life. And what he asks of us is not that we try harder to be good enough, that we by faith say yes to his offer of forgiveness and cleansing. And then the next thing is this. I can express my joy to him. I can express my joy to him. And you're thinking, well, with all this severity today, we're talking about joy? Yeah, yeah, this is what I'm talking about. This is what we should feel right now. If you're in Christ, you should feel joy right now. The joy of being forgiven, the joy of no residue, no burden for sin that you can step forward and be free. Look what it says in Romans 5. Once again, we have substitution here. I hope you read your Bible now. You read it through these eyes of substitution. God showed his great love for us by sending a son to die for us while we were still sinners. One aspect of substitution. And since we have been made right, the other one, in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. So you feel abandoned, you feel forgotten, you feel separated. Jesus says, no, when you're in me, you're a friend of my father. You're a friend of my daddy, and he loves you. So instead of fearing God's wrath, I can celebrate God's gift. Instead of fearing separation, I can celebrate relationship. Instead of fearing hell, I can celebrate the promise of heaven. And that's his strong word of purpose. Let's pray together. God, I just want to thank you for how this message has just so resonated in my heart, my soul, God. And I pray that everyone in the room, that you've interpreted exactly what they needed to hear from you today. And Lord, because it's so key that we say yes to Jesus by faith, I want to give you an opportunity. If you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, this is your day. It can't get any more clear than this, what Jesus has offered. And so if you've never said yes to him, right now, just in your heart, in your mind, you can say, Jesus, wow, yes. I want to receive forgiveness. I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. 
Jesus, I want to receive cleansing. I don't want to live with this residue all over me anymore. Cause of grace, I want to live for you. For the rest of my days, you just call a shot and I'll do what you say. I'm going to talk to those of you who came in today and you felt residue. You felt a burden because you've sinned. Even though you'd prayed and asked for forgiveness, you couldn't walk away from that burden. And I just want to say today, that's not from God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you can be free, and you can walk forward in freedom and joy, the joy of experiencing the cleansing from your sin. Just pray and ask that you would receive it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.